Good morning. It's good to be with you as the spring-summer semester begins. The mission statement of Tyndale Seminary, you'll find it on the website, and for those of you who are taking courses at the seminary, you actually find it in a box on the front page of each syllabus that you take. The mission statement says this, to provide Christ-centered graduate theological education for leaders in church and society whose lives are marked by intellectual maturity, spiritual vigor, and moral integrity, and whose witness will faithfully engage culture with the gospel. Our mission statement says that we are called to be in mission. We're called to be on mission as faithful witnesses. That word mission is challenging to define. We talk about going on an overseas mission, doing the mission of evangelism, or going to the local mission to serve at the, the food bank, perhaps. Thus, we, we use this word mission in such a wide variety of ways. We're going to a mission, a place, in order to do mission, an activity, because we are on mission. We have a purpose. So this makes mission a rather wide-ranging word. Is it a good word? We think so. We want the world to be a better place. We want to help others. We've met Jesus and we want others to know how wonderful he is, just as we've been singing this morning. But many times we find this mission difficult. We think of mission as God's command and so we're desperate. We want to get it right. We find it frightening, sometimes terrifying, to be involved in evangelism. One of the courses that I teach is evangelism and discipleship. In the very first week, we talk about who's terrified. And inevitably, more than half of the class puts up their hands. We want to be a mission, and sometimes as a church, it's just downright discouraging. We want to see the results of being on mission, and we assume that that means growth, and that means numbers, and sometimes that's not what we're experiencing. And so we're uncertain. Where do we begin? How do we go about this thing called mission? So today, I'd like us to begin this brand new semester with a brand new perspective. What would happen if we could see mission not as a difficulty, but as delight. What would happen if we followed that great missionary spokesman, Leslie Newbegin, and thought about mission as the radioactive fallout of an explosion of joy? Newbegin tells us that our tendency to talk about mission as a command actually misses the point because it turns mission into a burden that is too hard for us to bear. And he writes that in the story of Jesus, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout of a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but is life-giving. So today, let's focus on mission. Mission as an explosion of joy, a life giving explosion of joy. 
Well, one of the Bible stories that talks about mission as being full of joy is from Luke 10, which is sort of becoming a foundational chapter in the whole missional conversation where we've moved away from Matthew 28 and lately we've been adopting Luke 10. So I'm going to read to you Luke 10, verses 1 to 11, then I'm going to skip a section that talks about judgment and I'm going to finish with verses 17 to 23. And we're going to discover that the disciples experienced this explosion of joy and mission, but Jesus did too. So here's the passage. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. After this, we'll come back to that because that's important. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. That's not the joyful part. It comes later. Carry no purse, purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. It's getting a little bit better. For the laborer deserves to be paid. Haha, <laughs> that's even better. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who, um, who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. And then jump down to verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At the same hour, Jesus did what? Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So if you're feeling here, new semester, that you don't know anything, that's completely okay. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So before we begin to unpack the passage a little bit, let's start with the context. The passage started with those words, after this. So obviously, being good Bible students, we say, after what? Well, Luke's been exploring from 1 to, to 9 what it means to be a disciple, someone who follows Jesus and someone who lives into the reality of that gospel. 
And no surprise, this way of life was revolutionary. In fact, it was so countercultural that those early followers were getting it wrong most of the time. For example, in the previous chapter, so just in chapter 9, Jesus sent out the 12. And similar, a pattern to the story that's here. They didn't take provisions, but they had their needs met. They must have, because they came back. They saw miracles. However, they didn't understand the message of this coming kingdom that Jesus was bringing. Because as soon as they returned to Jesus and a crowd gathered, they were absolutely clueless about how they were going to feed them. Then a few days later, Jesus took some of them aside, took them up to a mountain. He was transfigured. They were just totally confused about what was going on. Then they couldn't heal the boy who needed their help. After that, they had an argument about who was going to be the greatest. They wanted to stop others who were not doing ministry in the same way that they were. Then they suggested that they violently judged those who chose not to respond. They said they wanted to follow Jesus, but they were so busy being distracted by other responsibilities that they weren't sure they really had the time. Sounds a little bit like the church today, doesn't it? So through all these misunderstandings, Jesus corrects, Jesus reveals, Jesus encourages. And through all their mistakes, their trust in Jesus grows. And so Jesus decides to place his trust in them again. And finally he decides they're ready to go out. So this time he sends at least 70 of them. Some of our passages say 72. And a word of encouragement for all the females here today. Women were included this time. Greg Forbes and Scott Harrowers, two Australian seminary professors, discuss the growing prominence of women as disciples throughout the section of the book of Luke. And uh, they wrote a book called Raised from Obscurity. And in Luke 8, they point out Jesus specifically had a group of disciples who were women who were actually supporting the ministry and providing the resources. And then at the end of chapter 10, we come to the story of Mary and Martha discussing the importance of women being disciples. So there's every reason to assume that right in the middle, women were involved in this group of 70 who were going out. So there were pairs that were sent on mission. And the pairs had an opportunity to learn some key lessons about mission. Now we talk about learning and we'll sometimes talk about the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Well, I'm not sure if I just spent a lot of time in this passage this week or if I was up too late, but I just started seeing R's everywhere. So today we're going to be looking at some of the R's that I found in the passage. And the first R is the responsibility of mission. Jesus who is specifically called the Lord here, so he's the king of the kingdom, appoints and sends the disciples out. He takes the initiative. He reminds them that the triune God is the Lord of the harvest. The disciples are not responsible for mission. The mission belongs to God, and we simply follow God's lead. So why do we keep trying to take control of the mission? Newbegin suggests that when we see mission as a command, we're tempted to do what we're always tempted to do. Namely, see the work of mission as good work 
and then to seek to justify ourselves by our works. But God doesn't need us to do mission on God's behalf, nor do we need to do mission to prove our worthiness to God. Rather, God invites our participation in what he's already doing in the world around us. God invites us to be the place in our interactions and in our lives to be the place where the Spirit can speak and act, but the responsibility for mission belongs to God and God alone. Even though God takes responsibility for the mission, Jesus invites our participation with a request. The request to which the disciples are invited to respond is twofold, to pray and to go. Jesus tells his disciples to beseech, to ask. Sometimes some versions say to beg. Thus our prayer is also a request. The disciples are not told to pray for success. They're not to pray for validation. They're not to pray for power. Rather, they're to ask God for more people to join in the mission. And then they're invited to go. When we go, our participation is more complete. See, Jesus says, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Jesus tells the disciples about the reality of mission. He tells them that they will experience difficulties. There's a certain danger, a certain vulnerability to mission. We don't know what to expect. The encouraging thing is though, even though we feel like lambs among wolves, the shepherd is always present, will not be deserted. Further, I think that image of lambs provides a sense of humility. We don't go into the world full of bluster and arrogance because we know all the answers. Rather, we renounce any claim to control history or destiny because as we follow our Lord in the way of suffering, the spirit is free to perform works of power in the midst of human weakness. Carry no purse, no bag. Jesus explains how the resources of mission work. He does not tell the disciples to store up vast reserves. Instead, he promises that he will provide the food and the housing that is required. Jesus does not tell the disciples to prepare to go and give. He doesn't tell them, go, extend your hospitality. Rather, he says, go and receive and accept help, the help of others. In the shame and honor culture, Jesus' followers would have shamed the host if they were to move from one house to another. And so they are to remain. Another R, but I didn't put that one up there. Thus the disciples are encouraged to adapt to the culture and receive hospitality. As they become involved in the mission of receiving, Jesus said that they will find that the Spirit has already been there ahead of them, encouraging people of peace. I realize that these are challenging thoughts for a church that longs to have all the answers and wants to be in a position to give rather than to receive. Like the disciples, we are called to a reliance on God in mission where we might receive from others. And at the same time, we're reminded that we are a community whose very existence is defined by a regular enactment, those times of communion or Eucharist,
when we walk through the story of a self-emptying God. God provides the resources of the mission so the disciples can then share the message of the mission, which is restoration. The disciples are to cure the sick. Broken people are restored. They're also to share and speak about the promise of the kingdom. Today, the church also shares the promise and hope, we sang about it today, of the kingdom. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, God is restoring broken relationships between people and God, between one person and another, and between people and creation. And then Jesus cautions the disciples. Don't focus too much on the result of the mission. The disciples are not responsible for ensuring that people are saved. The people they talk with are given complete freedom to receive or reject, more ours, the message. We tend to get caught up on our failures or boast about our success, but we cannot bring forth life in another. Thus, for us, there's only room to point beyond ourselves to Jesus and to witness to the reality of what God is doing in our midst. And so the 70 return from this mission with joy. Jesus tells them that they cannot always see the implications of the mission because there's a spiritual realignment happening. Because the results of mission actually happen in the spiritual realm, we cannot measure them. Further, Jesus encourages the disciples not to get distracted by what they think they might be seeing in all the miracles that are happening. When they see miracles, when they see the demons submit, they begin to think that the authority is theirs. And then... When, they, things, when, they, when they act and things, miracles don't happen, they think that God has abandoned them. So Jesus said, don't even go there. Don't be tempted to elevate your own importance or your own power. Rather, focus, he says, on what is truly, truly important. Experience the joy of mission, not because you're successful, but because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice, he says, because you are known. God has written down your name. You are important not because you are successful in mission. You are dearly loved simply because you are you. And then Luke tells us a surprising thing. He says, Jesus rejoices. Through the Spirit, Jesus bursts into praise. He bursts into thanksgiving to the Father because God is at work and disciples are beginning to understand what mission is all about. At the heart of mission is a revelation of relationship, of knowing and being known, and the opportunity to stand in God's presence as God reveals God's own self in the person of Jesus Christ. We are wobbling infants before the wonder of our God. We stand in the simplicity of who we are, realizing that we are on the edge of an amazing mystery. 
that the God of all eternity, holiness, and power has taken on human form so that we might discover that God knows us and that we might grow into the wonder of knowing who this God is. Luke exposes the laughter and delight of the triune God in the act of blessing the disciples. Jesus invites them, open your eyes, see who I am. Open your ears, the triune God is speaking. And the disciples are invited to become witnesses to this moment. The desires of all the prophets and kings, the desires of all people of all time, culminate in Jesus as the pinnacle and purpose of history. And we have a similar calling. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Out of that place of blessing, we are called to be faithful witnesses to engage our culture. We're invited to share with our culture that there is hope. There's a real future for the world. We have a ministry of reconciliation to share because we've been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. And so mission is a privilege in which we are invited to participate. Because God is not an abstract entity, but God has revealed God's own self through the humanity of Jesus Christ, and we can experience this wonder of relationship. We see, we hear, we love, we laugh, we rejoice. We experience disappointment, but also delight. We don't turn our friends into projects, but we can love them with abandon, knowing that the result of mission belongs to God. And further, our relationships with one another in the church become a foretaste of the kingdom, the hope to restore all that is broken. Jesus provides the variety of resources that we need, and he equips us for the reality that we will face. Our expectations and mission do not need to be governed by being exactly right so that God will bless us, but rather we can continue to live into the reality that the triune God owns, takes the initiative and the responsibility for the transformation of the world. Worship and mission unite in our lives because God is on a mission and he will not fail. And that's why we can be free to experience mission as the radioactive fallout from an explosion of joy. Newbegin also writes these words. The one who has been called and loved by the Lord, the one who wishes to love and serve the Lord will want to be where he is, where the Lord is. At the heart of mission is simply the desire to be with him and to give him the service of our lives. At the heart of mission is thanksgiving and praise. We distort matters when we make mission an enterprise of our own in which we can justify ourselves by our works. I said that the church's mission began as the radioactive fallout from an explosion of joy. When it is true to its nature, it is so to the end. Mission is an acted out doxology that is its deepest secret. Its purpose is that God may be glorified. So why are you at Tyndale? To gain intellectual maturity, to grow in spiritual vigor and moral integrity, to learn to be a witness who will faithfully engage culture? 
gospel life and ministry can be hard. Wolves are present, but the shepherd is here. Jesus is alive and the spirit is at work. The triune God is on a mission to transform the world and all the people within it. And our responsibility is to see and hear where God is already at work and invite others to come and join us on this journey of discovery. In this manner, mission is not an impossible burden, but a daily life of worship. A life of worship marked by the life-giving, radioactive fallout of this explosion of joy. Let's pray. Triune God, we thank you for this opportunity to join you on mission. May you teach us how to participate with you in life and in worship so that we might be faithful, faithful witnesses in our culture. And I ask that you would help us that we might grow in your mission and that we might experience this life-giving fallout of this explosion of joy because we belong to you, Jesus Christ, through your spirit. Amen. So today, may you go and may you experience life as a life-giving fallout of this explosion of joy. You're dismissed.